And the bus driver showed up at church one time, and uh, it was a surprise to see him. And he said, the reason I came to church today <clears throat> is to figure out, he says, I've driven the city bus for 30 years, and for 30 years, all I say is, move to the back, move to the back. And they never move to the back. I've come to church to figure out what it is that you do to get all the people in the back. When I got here this evening, I thought, you know, I'm going to sit up here and I'll be in good company. What's the matter with all these seats up here? So I figure if you're not, if you're not going to come to me, I'll come to you. I feel a little bit withdrawn up there. So is it okay to stand down here? I have no delusions about my height and whether or not you can see me. But it is a joy and a pleasure to be in Galena Park again. I was sharing with Brother David that many years ago, I used to come here very frequently. It seemed like once a year. And um, it's been years now, and I knew that the congregation was under a, a transition, transformation, you might say, in terms of uh, diversity, but I had no idea how much. This is, just, this is Caribbean flavor here. I mean, I mean, the Hispanics don't have a, you know, it's like, this is fully transformed. And there's just so much I could say, but I'll just say to God be the glory. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you again and to see some old faces and a lot of new faces. And back when I used to come, I had 20-20 vision. Now I don't see very well, and that's why I have this up here. And I can't see you very well, so I'll depend on you to let me know you're there. And it uh, sounds like you do that well here, so very good. And it's good to see Brother Seth. We've been in touch and communicating about Barbados and all that, and it's just such a joy to be here tonight and to hear him speak and lead out and and the music that he provides it's just very impressive and uh, thank God for all of that and so it's Friday night and we started at seven o'clock and it's now quarter after eight how does this work um, do I have 15 minutes or <laughs> the Apostle Paul preached one time until midnight the problem was that a guy fell asleep and fell out the window and broke his neck and died. Problem is that Paul rose him from the dead. I don't know that I can do that tonight. Here's what we're going to do tonight. The series that begins tonight and tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon, A Quest for Authentic Faith. And tonight we're talking about living the real you putting on the new man. What I want to do is to ask you, if you would, to take your hands, hold up your hands, wave at me, please. And what I want you to do is to clasp your hands together like this, bring it very close to you, and just, just kind of um, marinate in the feeling of a clasped hand close to you. Now hold them back up like this. Take them apart. Look at them. 
and do like this, do like this. And I'm suggesting to you tonight, thank you very much, you can put him down, I'm suggesting tonight that the gospel, the Bible, the whole of biblical history is about this, and about this, and about this. Because you see, it began with God and man in close harmony, together. The Bible says that God made man out of the dust of the ground. It was a perfect environment. You know how we know it was perfect? Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. You know how we know? Because Adam never had occasion to say to Eve, tell your mama to keep her nose out of our business. Because there was no mama. And Adam never said to Eve, that's not how my mama used to cook it. It was all perfect, and the Bible says that every evening in the cool of the day, God would come down and commune with man and woman in close and authentic fellowship. Then entered the devil, then entered Satan, and man sinned and man fell, and as a result of the fall, this became this. This. Separation. Alienation. And what we have in the gospel, what we have in the Christian faith, is the process of God bringing this and this back together. And we have the atonement of Jesus Christ at one meant. The word atonement the atoning sacrifice of Christ simply means to bring at one mint that which were, well, we'll say two mint. To bring it all back together. But you see, what Jesus did on the cross in terms of the atonement is only the beginning of the process of God doing this. God is in the process of bringing us closer and closer and closer and closer back to what he originally intended. In fact, let's do this. There are three words that I want you to remember, and I want you to say them for me. One is formed. Everybody say formed. We were made in God's image. The second word is deformed, broken by sin. And the third word is transformed. We were formed by God, deformed by sin, and now God has this wonderful plan of transformation whereby he is making us more and more into his image. And that's where we begin tonight, because you see, the world is hungry for authenticity and transparency. We have a generation upon us today called the millennial generation. Millennials, it's, it's the newest generation, it's the largest generation ever. We had the boomers and the busters and Gen Xers and all of those generations, and now we have the millennials... Millennials are unique. Millennials don't trust the government. Millennials are, they're the tech generation. 
They're very individualistic. And one of the things about the millennial generation is that they desire authenticity. They want authentic relationships. And when they see that which is phony, they can spot it a mile away and they want nothing to do with it. They want the authentic. And the reason why this is so important is because what we're after in the Church of God Seventh-day today is real ministry. Can you say amen to that? We want ministry to be real, real ministry. And real ministry is, re is where the real you meet real needs in the right way for the right reason. Let me run that by you again. Real ministry is re where the real you meets real needs in the right way for the right reason. Let me tell you what the opposite is. The opposite is where a fake version of you seek to meet perceived needs in the wrong way for the wrong reason. Perhaps you've never seen that, and perhaps that has never happened at Galena Park, but it does happen. A fake version of you, where you come to church to show this version of you that you want people to believe you are, but you're really not, and you want to do ministry, meeting needs that are perceived needs, but are not real for the wrong reason, in the wrong way, and God is not glorified. And that brings us to Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. If you have your Bible, if you have your smartphone, take it out. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 but now you yourselves are, are to put off all these, anger, wrath, and malice, and blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And do not, be, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, verse 10, who is renewed in, the, in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Can the church shout amen? Christ is all in all. The central idea in these verses in Colossians chapter 3 is the life change that is supposed to happen and demonstrated in those who have experienced the resurrected life, the resurrection life. Have you experienced the resurrection life? Perhaps you don't even know what I mean by the resurrection life. Notice, notice the thread in Colossians 3. We, read, we started reading in verse 8, verses 8 through 11, Notice, let's back up to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, and notice the thread, notice the, the theme, the common emphasis in the verses there. 
Verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Notice that. Look at verse 2. Set your mind, the King James says, set your affections on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. Look at verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you see the emphasis there? In fact, the best treatment of this is found in Romans chapter 6. And it's a very, very familiar chapter in Romans. In Romans 6, basically, Paul says, Christ not only died for our sins, and the word there is substitution, we sinned, he died for our sins, he became our substitute, but but beyond that, we died with Christ. Now, It's very easy for you to miss this, so I'm going to ask you to just focus here for a moment. Christ died for us, becoming our substitute, but that's not all. The other side of that coin is that we died with Christ, and the word there is identification. We identify with Christ because he not only died for us, but we died with him, that's Romans chapter 6, And what that means is that Christ not only died for our sins, bearing its penalty, Christ died unto sin, breaking its power. Breaking its power. Worrying that I may be losing you a bit, but, but, but hang on here for a moment. Follow me carefully. Christ died unto sin, breaking its power. There's, a, there's an old hymn that we don't sing a lot anymore. It's called, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing Our Great Redeemer's Praise. And in that, in that hymn, there's a line that says, He breaks the power of what? Canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. What, what does he mean, cancel sin? What is a cancel sin? Well, simply stated, and I want you to hear me very carefully, a canceled sin is a sin that God has died for in Jesus and broken by the power of Christ, and yet that sin continues to dominate our lives. It's amazing. It's amazing how we can confess Christ, be baptized, become a part of the church, love the Lord, serve Him, but still live as slaves to particular sins that dominate our lives. These sins are canceled sins. And yet, they live on in the lives of those who are not fully surrendered to Christ. A good illustration is the African missionary who tells the story of going to Africa and one day walked into her house from a journey, came back home, walked into her house, and there was an anaconda in her house. You know what that is. And so she ran for help and they called the villagers and they, you know, they knew what to do and they somehow managed to cut the head off of that thing 
And she said the amazing thing was that for two to three hours after the head was cut off, that thing just trashed and roared and banged all over her house. Head cut off. It's dead. But it's not really dead. Life is still in it, and it continues to, to beat and thrash and turn and tumble. Maybe a better illustration is, you know, where they kill a chicken on the farm. Those of you from the Caribbean, you, you, you know what it is to kill a chicken? It grosses out the people from America because they can't, you know, we, 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 we pick the chicken out that we're going to eat on Sunday. We feed him really well. And about Sunday morning, we throw the feed out. And he comes up, we catch him, and a couple hours later, we're eating him. You know, it's, it's just... Anyway, on this farm, the guy killed a chicken, and the visitor was coming by, and he killed a chicken, and the chicken just kept fluffing up all over, all over the yard. And he says, how come? I thought you killed him. I thought he's dead. The farmer said, yep, yeah, he's dead. He just don't know it yet. <laughs> Satan is dead. He just doesn't know it yet. The Bible says that the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. God has pulled his teeth and taken out his claws. He just roars. And the good news of the gospel is today that you don't have to be afraid of Satan. You don't have to be intimidated by the lion's roar because God has taken its sting. And by his power, we can live above the canceled sins in our lives. Basically, what Paul says in Romans 6 is that we died with Christ, we are raised with Christ, and to be raised with Christ is to live the resurrection life with Christ. And to live the resurrection life with Christ is to experience victory over the sins that Jesus Christ has died for. It is on that basis that Paul, the same guy who wrote Romans chapter 6, now in Colossians 3 says, put off the old man. Put off the old man. You have the power to live down the old man. Anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy communication out of your mouth Paul says, put it off. Let's say, put it off. Are, are, you tra are you tracking with me? Well, Christianity, however, isn't just about what we put off. Christianity is a lot about what we put on. You see, some of us grew up in a church, in an era of the church, where all we talked about is what we don't do, what we don't believe in. And it's time for us to talk about what we do do. Not do-do, but do-do. <laughs> it's time for us to talk about what we do believe, who we are, what we embrace, what we love. The difference Christ makes in our lives. 
Dr. Calvin Miller, in his book, Into the Depths of God, a book that I highly recommend, he says Christians are not to be so much quitters as starters. They do not, they do not endear themselves to God because of all the things that they lay aside at conversion. Rather, it is what they take up that catches heaven's esteem. To say it more succinctly, Calvin Miller says, Christians are usually more fascinated with the brakes of the car than with the steering wheel. So Paul says, don't just put off the old man. Paul says, put on the new man. Put on the new man. Verse 10. And the list of things that he says to put off are specific and the, the list is long, verses 12 through 14. Look at it. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Look at verse 14. But above, all, but above all these things, put on what? Love, which is the bond of perfection. Imagine, try to visualize what Galena Park would look like if everybody here lived in obedience to Paul's command in these verses. You know, when Paul says, when we believe, if you really believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, given by inspiration of God, then you have to believe that when Paul commands us to put on the new man, that this command is as important as all the other commands in the Bible. This is more than an old man, an old guy getting a new wardrobe. This is not having your best life yet, to quote a book title from a famous Houston pastor. Rather, this is a new quality of life that never before existed. Paul says, here's what you used to be. Put off all of that. Here's what you are now in Christ. Put this on and live the real you in Christ. This is a new quality of life that never before existed. And the word here that undergirds what Paul is trying to tell us, or what Paul is telling us, is the word regeneration. Regeneration. The new regenerate self replaces the old unregenerate self. And the Greek had two words for new. New. The first word is the word neos means new in time. We get the word neo-orthodoxy and words like those. But then the second word that the Greeks have for new is kainos. And kainos means new in quality, fresh, brand new, never before. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Let's put on the new never before man. 
the regenerate man, kainos, new in quality, new in quality. In fact, Paul's command to put on the new man has in mind a new quality of life that never before existed. And the New Testament word for how that happens is the word transformation. Transformation. Everybody say transformation. Transformation in Espanol. And that word transformation is found only two times in the New Testament. Only two times in that form of the word. And I want to hold them up to you tonight. The first one is Romans chapter 12, and you all know it. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. In the King James, it says your reasonable act of service. If the newer translation says worship, that's not a mistranslation. The word service, the turo in the Greek, and the word worship is the same word, your reasonable act of worship. When you serve in this church, you're worshiping God. Then Paul says in verse 2, and be ye no longer conformed to this world after the pattern of the world. J.B. Phillips translates this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Rather, be ye, what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind, whereby you'll discover, you'll come to know God's perfect and holy and desirable will. The word transformation there in Romans chapter 12. The second place it's found is 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3 is that marvelous chapter where Paul is comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. And he comes to the end of the chapter in verse 18 and he basically says, But we all with unveiled faces... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory unto glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Are you still tracking with me? Transformation, that's the word. Romans 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the Greek word, the Greek idea behind the word transformation the word in the Greek text is metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And you all know that word that describes the process whereby a, a, a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. And, you know, it's amazing how, as Christians, Paul says we have been transformed. We were a caterpillar, now we're a butterfly. And so what we have, we have butterflies living caterpillar lives in the church. A butterfly comes out of a caterpillar, but a butterfly is very, very different in nature than a caterpillar. They look different, their activities are different. One comes out of the other, 
but something totally new, a butterfly is from a caterpillar. An even better illustration, because you see, you and I have never been a caterpillar or a butterfly. But here's a better, here, here's, a, here's an illustration that comes closer home. How about a baby? Some, most of us here, a lot of us here have had children. You remember bringing your first child home, your little bundle of joy, you know. And can you imagine coming home with your new baby and saying, hey, this baby is a renovated baby. This baby used to be somebody's baby down there, and God, you know, kind of got it in there and got it back to us. No. A baby is a new baby. Can you say amen to that? A brand new baby that never existed before. That's the word here. That's what Paul is getting at here. He says, put on the new man. Put on the new man. John Chrysostom says the animals went into the ark of Noah and they went out the same way they went in. The crow came in a crow and went out a crow. The fox came in a fox and went out a fox. The porcupine went in a porcupine and came out just the same way he went in. Still armed with his living arrows. No change. But those who enter into Jesus Christ, who is the ark of salvation, go in one thing and they come out something entirely different. Totally transformed. Totally transformed. It's been a great change since I was born. I know these ladies know that song. Brethren, brothers and sisters, that's how the church of the, of the first century, that's how the first century church survived the onslaught of the Roman Empire. Rome had a vested interest in putting the church out of business. Do you know how come they never put them out of business? They didn't put them out of business because Rome was powerless against the evidence of a changed life. When they saw these men, these followers of Christ, this little band of disciples now turning the world upside down, the powers of Rome stood back and couldn't do anything about it. Why do you think the disciples of Christ, long after Christ, was, Christ had died and ascended, laid down their lives and died cruel deaths? Because they were fakes? No, because they were real. They were living the real them because they were transformed from the inside out, radically saved, and that made all the difference. And it still makes all the difference in the 21st century today. And so, there are three questions that I have for you tonight based on the verses in Colossians 3 that we just read. The first question is, have you ever trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I'm happy for those who have said amen to that question. My concern is for those who maybe have not ever trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because if you haven't trusted Christ as Savior, 
then your journey has not begun. Did you begin with renovation or with regeneration? Has there ever been a moment in time when you once and for all trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And, and the reason I'm asking the question is because so many places where I go, I meet people who were born and raised in the church, always been a part of the church, it's just part of who they are, and they're just always a part of the church. And I tell people, like you've heard people say, that being in a garage doesn't make you a car. And always being in Church of God Seventh Day doesn't make you a Christian. You can be a member of the Church of God Seventh Day and be unsaved. And God is calling us tonight to authentic faith, calling us to trust Him, to come to know Christ as Savior. Have you been to Jesus Christ for the cleansing blood? Has the old man been buried? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Here's a second question. Moving right along, second question. Are you still wearing your grave clothes? You're still wearing your grave clothes. The whole idea in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, put off the old man, put on the new man, is the idea of, of changing clothes. The great change since I was born in Christ is that I no longer do the things I used to do. I no longer wear the clothes I used to wear. I'm a new man. And the question is, are you still wearing your grave clothes? Let me remind you that Jesus Christ, when Jesus rose from the dead, when Peter ran into the tomb, what did he find there? The grave cloth. The grave clothes. Jesus took them off, folded them up, or maybe the angels did, and laid them there. There's, there's a lesson there for us tonight. When Lazarus was raised from the grave, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And you've heard the preacher say that it's a, it's a good thing that Jesus Christ was specific when he said Lazarus, because if he didn't specify Lazarus, every grave, in, every dead in that cemetery would have gotten up. But when Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus said to the people standing around, Loose him. Because in Jewish culture, they wrapped the dead in grave cloth before they put it into the tomb. And Jesus said, Loose him and set him free. Isn't it interesting? Dead, resurrected, raised from the grave, but still need to be loosed. Maybe it's time for us to have a woman thou art loose session in this church. And men thou art loose in this church. Loose him and set him free. Free to live, free to love, free to serve, free to be real. Now you know which religious television programs I watch, don't you?
Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's where the series begins tonight. Are you still wearing your grave clothes? That's the second question. And thirdly and finally, do you understand, do you realize that Jesus is your life? Jesus is your life. Can you all say, Jesus is my life? Jesus is my life. Now, some of you don't know what I mean. And some of you do. Let me tell you what I mean. Look in Colossians chapter 3 and look at verse 4. Paul says, when Christ, who is what? My life shall appear. I am going to appear with him. When Christ, who is my life, Jesus is my life. That's the liberation that came to my heart many years ago when I began to realize that Jesus Christ is my life. I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and in the Adventist church, we don't wear jewelry. And I got me a ring when I was in my early teens, and I, I, I loved this ring. I used to wear the ring. And whenever I went to bed at night, I would take the ring off and put it on my pillow. Because I thought, if Jesus came tonight while I'm sleeping, I don't want him to catch this ring on my finger because I'll be lost. Don't mind the fact that I wear it all day. Until I realized that my faith is in Jesus. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died for me. Jesus Christ is my life. And that is a liberating truth. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12, John says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have a life abiding in him. Think about that for a moment. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life abiding in him. I have a theory. We talk about the abundant life, John 10.10. 10, I am come that, I have, that you might have life and have it how much? Abundantly. The thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's Satan's game plan. But, thank God for the blessed but. But, here's Jesus' game plan. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. What is abundant life? If to have Jesus Christ is to have life, if to not have him is to not have any life, then it means that to have abundant life is to have a whole lot of Jesus. I think you just missed what I said. You ought to be shouting amen. If to have life is to have Jesus, to have abundant life is to have a whole abundance of Jesus. Jesus is my life. 
and Jesus changes everything. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm speaking, um, some of you heard that I became very ill two days ago and began to question whether or not I'd be able to come. I had to go see the doctor yesterday. I'm on antibiotics, just a lot of dreading in my throat. I picked up my wife and I just came back. We were on the East Coast in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and North Carolina. Flew home Monday night, and uh, Wednesday I got terribly sick. Got a fever yesterday. I didn't sleep much last night, and I thought there's no way I can go to Houston and, and speak and just exert my voice. And here I am, because God heals. It just occurred to me that I'm not acting sick tonight, because you prayed. Jesus Christ is my life, and he's your life. Colossians 3, 10 and 11 says, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all in all. Can you say that? Christ is all. Say it. Christ is all. Jesus is my life. Jesus changes everything. Personality, I'm sorry, personally, spiritually, culturally, Socioeconomically, Jesus changes everything. You see, the Greeks considered all non-Greeks to be barbarians. And in the mind of a Greek person, the Scythians were the lowest of the low. They were the lowest of the barbarians. Paul says, writing to the church in Colossae, Paul says, there is no Greek or Jew, there is no Scythian versus Greek versus barbarian, whatever, Christ is all in all. In other words, all is a level at the foot of the cross. When you see me, don't see a black man. When I see you, I don't see a white man or a Hispanic man. I see a man and a woman in Christ. Jesus changes everything. So I don't know who you're going to vote for in November on November 7th, whether it's Trump or Hillary, but make sure you cast a vote for Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's not even running for election. Why is it so important for us to underscore that Jesus Christ is our life tonight? As I close, I... I want to just kind of bring this home. Because Christians face the ever-present danger of substituting something for Jesus. And it's very subtle. We don't even realize we're doing it. We substitute something for Jesus Christ all the time. C.I. Schofield, those of you who used to have a Schofield reference Bible, Dr. Schofield says... Pure Christianity lives between two dangers ever-present. Number one, the danger that it will evaporate into a philosophy. And number two, the danger that it'll, it'll um, freeze or dwarf into a form. A philosophy or a form. Formalism. Institutionalism. Two dangers. 
And in case you haven't noticed, in case you're not familiar with the letter to, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, let me just say that that is exactly what Paul addresses in chapters 1 and 2. Before, that's how he gets to chapter 3, where he says, put off the old man, put on the new man. In chapter 1, Paul is dealing with the things that the Colossians are substituting for Christ. In fact, can I, can I show you those? Do we have time? Is it time for your nap? Here's the first one, chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. What are they substituting? Philosophy. Philosophy. Say philosophy. philosophy. The word philosophy comes from two words, philo and sophia. If you have a daughter named Sophia or a sister named Sophia, it comes out of the word philosophy. Philo, love. Sophia, knowledge. Philosophy, the love of knowledge. It's interesting to me that in the Garden of Eden, the way man fell is that they ate from what? The tree of the knowledge. Because God wanted them to only know one thing, one person. He wanted them to know him. And Satan came and said, no, no, no. He's cheating you. He doesn't want you to really know. See, you, you eat this, you're going to know. And we have Christians today in the church who bank on the idea that they know. They know so much. And who cares if you know the Bible if it's all just in your head? What I want to know, are you doing the things he said? What specific philosophy or philosophical thought grabbed the Colossian people there? Basically, it's Gnosticism. The Greek word Gnosticism, gnosis, knowledge. It's the idea that there is a superior knowledge that you have to have, a way of knowing things, superior knowledge that somehow earns you a place and a relationship with the Lord. And Paul says emphatically, it's not Gnosticism, it's Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and, in and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn. Hey, let's, let's just stop right there. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Jesus is everything. He's everything. Everything to me. Let, let's move on quickly because I want to I wanna send you home here before you give out on me. You're doing very well. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. But, but let me show you the second thing that they're substituting. Look at, um, well, actually, 
you have to read the entire chapter 2 of Colossians to, to find it, because it's all over the chapter, and we don't have time to do that tonight. So let me tell you what it is. It is legalism. Read chapter 2 when you go home. You'll see it. Throughout the chapter, Paul says, you've got a problem. You're substituting legalism for Jesus. And what is legalism? It's an unhealthy preoccupation with the law. And we are, we are a people of the law. Church of God, Seventh Day. In most of our churches, you will find it will be offensive to have a cross anywhere in our building, but it will certainly be normal to have a copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall. In fact, many years ago here in this church, there was a copy of the Ten Commandments right over there. And let me, let me say quickly, let me, let me relieve your fears. I'm not against the law. David says, oh, how I love thy law. Paul says the law is not bad. The law is good. I wouldn't know sin if there wasn't a law. We're not about to do away with the law. But the law needs to be put in its right place in relationship to Jesus Christ. And legalism is defined by Max Locato. This is a very good definition. Write this down. Legalism is when my convictions become your obligations. When my convictions, my personal heart convictions, are imposed upon you and obligate you to feel the way I feel about those same things, that is legalism. And Paul says to the Colossians, it is not legalism, it is Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, C.I. Schofield says that the church lives between two dangers ever present, that it would evaporate into a philosophy or morph into a form, Galena Park, Churches of God, Seventh Day in Houston, Texas, I'm asking you, are you in danger of evaporating into a philosophy or dwarfing or morphing into a form or will you stand in the center and glorify Jesus Christ? And Paul, by the way, introduces a third ism in chapter 2. In chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 20, 21, 22, 23, basically, uh, Paul says, Therefore, if you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men? These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let me translate that for you. First of all, what is Paul talking about? If the first one, the first substitution is philosophy, knowledge. The second one is legalism, preoccupation with the law. This one is asceticism. And, and that's not a word that I say very well, but I think you know what I mean. Asceticism. And what that is, 
It is self-imposed discipline, fasting, um, denial of self, in order that somehow I might avoid pleasure, and by avoiding pleasure and being really sad and beating upon my body, I might gain acceptance with God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's what the Roman Catholics do. They have the monastic lifestyle, and Eastern religions do this, and mysticism, they do this. But look at what Paul says in verse 23. Look at Colossians 3, verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let me translate that. These practices don't kill the flesh in you. They may help create discipline in you, but ultimately you still sin because you still live in the flesh. The reasons, the reason we sin, we, 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 we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. There's a difference. Do you get that? Are you, are you writing this down? Are you there? Are you out there? Can see you. Can you see me? Can you see me now? We are in sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Oprah Winfrey is telling us something different. And we can talk about the oprification of America going on out there in religion. But we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that's how we get to chapter 3 of Colossians. That's how we get to Jesus, where we understand that Jesus Christ is our life. He's the only hope for the sin problem. The answer to philosophy and Gnosticism is Jesus. The answer to legalism is Jesus. The answer to asceticism is Jesus. In fact, let me give you this formula. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. And so I close my message this evening by drawing your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where I referenced earlier a few minutes ago. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And Paul says the Old Covenant had glory. Don't, don't kid yourself. Even though it's old, it had glory. Go back to Sinai. Go back to Moses. Go back to the people of Israel to put put them on Sinai and you'll see the glory of God. The old covenant had glory. However, Paul says, the new covenant has even more glory. The glory of the old pales in comparison. Pales like a candle in comparison to the glory of the new. But Paul In verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 3 says, What stops us from seeing the glory of the new is the veil that covers our eyes. There's a veil over our faces. 
Paul says that the veil has to do with the way we read the law. Look at verses 15 and 16. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is taken away. The veil is removed when we turn to Jesus. And how do we do that? Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now the Lord is that spirit. Jesus is that spirit. Some of us have a difficult time understanding that. You know, the Bible, Paul says, Christ in you, finish it, the hope of glory. Who is Christ in us? How is Christ in us? Christ in me is the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says to put on Christ, it's basically saying to put on the Spirit because that's the Spirit that we have now. Christ now in us is the Holy Spirit. And Paul says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. In other words, where the Lord is, we are liberated. He gives us freedom from sin and our futile attempts to keep the law as a means of earning righteousness before God. So we turn from the law, we turn from Moses, we turn to Jesus, and we gaze at Jesus. And guess what? We become what we gaze at. And what happens as we gaze at Jesus? Look at verse 18. And with this I'm going to close. So take courage. Verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, what? Transformed into the same image we're being transformed into the image we're gazing at from glory to glory. One translation says, we're being transformed with ever-increasing intensity from one level of glory, from one level of intensity to a higher level of intensity of glory, from glory to glory. Getting better every day. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord, we become what we're gazing at. And gazing at Jesus, we become just like Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. And Jesus makes all the difference. In your life, and in my life, and in the life of this church, and in the life of the community outside of this church, because Jesus Christ called us in here so that we can make a difference out there. And the only way to make a difference out there is to allow Jesus to make the greatest difference in our lives in here as we gaze at him. We become like him from glory to glory. Amen.